Masechet Rosh Hashanah, Daf 26, and we begin the section about uh, Shofar. And this is very interesting. I want to show you the entire Mishnah for a minute. Uh, we started off with the four different times of the year when we have a new year and then when, we, when the world is judged and six times of the year when the messengers go out. And that's how we got into the laws of sanctifying the new moon. And that occupied us for the entirety of chapter one and all of chapter two. And then, strangely, the first Mishnah of chapter three also. But right after that, we go into the Shofar. And the Shofar is just about the entire third pedic, except for the last Mishnah, which is about looking up at Moshe's hands. And so everybody wonders for, for ages, why is 3-1 part of chapter three? It really should be the end of chapter two. So it's a very difficult question. You can see Tiferet Yisrael asks why this sharp knife has been placed between the two chapters right over here. So I'd like to offer one response now based on uh, Professor Wolfish. Um, and another one we'll get to at some point. And number one is, you see that the first chapter of the Mishnah ends with the Pasuk, that you have to declare the new moon on the correct day, and this is a justification for the fact that witnesses are allowed to travel even on Shabbat, which is this whole section opens and, uh, and ends on traveling on Shabbat. So it ends, on, it ends with this verse. And then chapter two also ends with that verse. I mean, it's the whole story, but the, cent the center point of that story is Rabbi Akiva, but leaves out the word to mean that it does not have to be on the correct astronomical date. Whenever the authorities, the betting decides, then that's fine. They can constitute the, um, the calendar. So this, uh, uh, this is in a way the opposite message of the end of chapter one. And so by putting a break here, chapter one and chapter two end with the same verse, even though they are in tension with each other, kind of a paradox, but a healthy paradox, because the point of the paradox is that, yes, the Betin has authority and they can declare it whenever they say that's the real date. On the other hand, they have to try. They have to be going and looking up at the sky and, and examining the witnesses. So they have their goal has to be to get to the correct Bimo Adam, even though if for whatever reason they don't, by mistake or on purpose to set the calendar, even if they don't, it's nevertheless valid. So these are the two poles of what the Betin would have to deal with. Okay, but we, we will see how seeing, all of Israel seeing, is going to be actually be related to the symbolism of Shofar, where everybody's also hearing, but we'll get there in due course. Okay, so now for the Mishnah today, we're going to be dealing, asking the question, what kind of animal can we use to derive the shofar? And for the first Mishnah is going to give us the opinion of the sages that say any animal, a horn, but not a cow and not a bull. And we'll see three reasons for that. One is because a cow's horns are called a keden, but they are never called a shofar in Tanakh. And that's the difference between the two. It has to be a shofar, not just a, a generic horn. And uh, reason number two is that the, since the golden calf was made with a baby cow, 
Uh, therefore, we cannot, we don't want to use that when we are on uh, uh, asking for mercy on the day of judgment. We're not going to remind uh, uh, the judge of the sin of the golden calf. So therefore, no cow horns. And the third reason is because the cow horn is layered and it's like multiple horns and you have to blow only one shofar. Uh, but we will see that there are other opinions about that as well. Then we're going to go into a very interesting section about word definitions and etymologies. And then we'll get to the next Mishnah, which says, although you can use anything but a cow, the preference is to use an ibex. And we'll compare that to Yovel and fast days when we also blow uh, shofar. And should they be straight like an ibex or bent over like a ram? And we'll see the symbolism of it. All right, so a lot to do here. We begin. You can use any shofar you want from any animal except from a cow. It's using cow, but the same would be for a male bull um, because that is called a horn and not called a shofar. The said disagrees and he says, you can use anything, even a cow, because every shofar is also called a horn. And where does he learn that from? This is a pasuk in Yoshua regarding, um, uh, regarding when they um, march around Yericho, and he says, you're going to all blow a shofar. So, and he says in the instructions, So we know that they are blowing something called a shofar, and yet it's also called keren. So his point is that keren and shofar are synonyms, right? They could use them interchangeably. So anything that's a shofar is a keren. Anything that's a keren is also a shofar. And so therefore, that's going to come to it. That's going to include a para also. Okay, so that's the machloket. Riyoseh is more inclusive. So now we're going to go through a bit of a back and forth between Tanakama and Riyoseh, why they say each their opinion. Shapir Kama Riyoseh. First we say, Riyoseh seems to have a point. This pasuk does mention Keren and also is talking about a, and mentions Shofar. So they do seem to be the same. And so for sure, any Keren, including that of a cow, should be okay, right? How about a banan? But a banan kola shofarot ikru shofar vi ikru keren. De para keren ikri shofar la ikri. So he says, I agree only one way, and every shofar is um uh is, every shofar is a shofar and is also a keren. So keren, his point is that horn is the larger, more general category, and that is subsumes that includes any type of shofar. Um, however, the other way around is not true. That of a para is called a keren, but is not included in shofar. So every shofar can be a horn, but not every horn is a shofar. They're not synonyms. Keren is a wider um, definition. Shofar is a smaller definition. And he has a proof. This is in Vezota Beracha, the final Beracha to Yosef. Uh, is that his firstborn bull grandeur is his, and his horns are the horns of a of a of a, a ram of a of a um, here's his wild ox or a ram. So you see that um, and so here we see the word keren without the word shofar. So you see that it's called a keren and not a shofar. Right, because shoda, that's what we're learning from. Sorry, right, because shoda, you see the word shod is related to keren. It's called keren, but it's not called shofar. 
there you go. Um, the M is both. The M is both a shofar and a keren. But we're learning it from the word shoda. So, so Rabbanan have a proof there that, in fact, it's only called keren. So they're not uh, uh, that of a bull is no good. Okay, this is a very creative derasha. The entire pasuk here in Tehilim says, um, that, that my, the pasuk before says, Hashem accept my prayers, my thanksgiving, and my thanksgiving prayers should be better to Hashem than an ox, um, than a bull with horns and hooves. Okay, that's the, that's the simple reading of it. Um, and you see that in the punctuation here in the English, um, it's a parallelism, but titavla Hashem mishor, and then par mikeden mafris, or something like that, an oxen, and even more than bulls with horns and hooves. But it's really hard to read the syntax. And this, the question of the Talmud is, why would you say mishor and par? Why the double language? If you said shor, why, why, why mention the male shor and, uh, and par also male? Um, the bull and ox. Bull and ox are the same animal. Um, bull, uh, ox just means that it was uh, castrated to calm it down. So why the doubling of it? Uh, so he says, actually, you can read it as one word. Watch this. You take short and pod and put them together and you get shofar. Okay, you have to skip the resh. Short pod, shofar. And so therefore, what do you, what do you see there? The Biyosef says, short and pod and ox a bull. Put them together, and you get shofar. So therefore, that uh, the horn of a of a cow of a bull is in fact a shofar. Okay, very nice, very creative. This is actually quite interesting because in the Talmud, Yerushalmi quotes this pasuk for Rabbanan for the opposite because it says shor pad is a keden, right? A pad has a keden, so it's only a keden and not a shofar. So you see that um, uh, quoting this in the name of the Biyoseh is a total flip. Uh, around as a response to the way Rabbanan use it otherwise. Okay, so this is really cool. Now, Rabbanan, what are they going to do with this? They can read it a Peshat way that it's better, my prayers are better to Hashem or more favorable to Hashem than a Shod that's as large as a Pad. A Pad is a name of an animal only when it's three years old and up, when it's already full, uh, big animal. So a short, that's like as big as a par. And so that's the point. And it's a simple, simple Peshat reading. So don't put the words together, shofar. But it's still, that's a cool derasha. Ula Ahmad. Okay, all that was the first explanation of the sages. They said, you cannot use a cow horn because it's called a kedin. It's not called a shofar. And they proved that pretty well from the Pesukim. But now we're going to see reason number two. In the name of Ula, Amar, Hainu Tamad Rabanan. Kedirav Chista, Damarav Chista, Mepnema en Kohen Gadol. Nichnas Pigdeza Hav Lifnai Velifnim Lavod Avoda. Lefisha en Kategor, Nasa Sanegor. Rav Chista said in the context of the clothing of the Kohen Gadol, usually all year round he wears gold um, on his clothing. But on Yom Kippur, he does not, whenever, on, Yom Kippur also wears gold when he's outside, but when he goes into the Kodesh Kodashim, he changes and wears white. And Rav Chista explained, why does he do that? Because a kategor, a prosecutor, cannot become a defender. So we're using an analogy in a courtroom, right? Let's say, you know, you hire someone to be 
uh, someone is hired to be a, uh, a prosecutor, and then in the middle of the court case, right, let's say, you know, they, they want to change their mind. No, you can't go to the other side because your whole time you're arguing against the person. You're not going to be a good defender in that case. So that's true in legal cases. And we're applying that here also, that gold, because the golden calf was made out of gold, and that was uh, the quintessential sin of Bnei Israel. Therefore, on Yom Kippur, when we're coming to beg for mercy, it is not appropriate to wear gold, and that will remind Hashem of that quintessential sin. So when he's going into Kodesh Kodeshim, he wears white. Now, what does that have to do with us? Oh, it's the same point, that just like he doesn't wear gold, so too, we don't want to bring a, uh, a calf. Uh, which is a baby a cow into the um, uh, we, we don't want to use the horn on, on Rosh Hashanah. We don't want to use the horn of a cow because the horn of a cow will rem- be, be a reminder of the cow, the calf, the golden calf. So don't use that animal. Use a different animal. Good. That's uh, that's the explanation of Ula applying Rav Chista's statement about clothing to the origin of the shofar. Good. Now, Velo, Dampad, hold on. Do we not have anything regarding uh, regarding bulls on Yom Kippur? We do. One of the one of the animals that must be brought is Pad Hachatat, Asher Lo. So he brings the blood of a bull. So why don't you say over there? Oh, no good. It's going to remind Hashem of the Cheta Egel. So there we answer Ho'il Ishtane Ishtane. It's a different form. He slaughtered it, and he's only bringing the blood. He's not bringing the animal itself. Um, but the shofar is an actual, you know, piece of the animal. And so it's uh, more of a reminder. All right. And what about other things that are made out of gold? The ark, the ark cover, the kiruvim, they're all made out of gold. So why don't you say no gold in the Kodesh Kodeshim? And the answer to that is, We meant that a sinner should not bring gold in. If it's already in the Kodesh Kodeshim, it's part of the furniture that remains there, that's okay. But the person, the sinner, the Kohen Gadol, we're calling a sinner because he's representing all Ben Israel. And so he's coming in with gold. That's not appropriate. But the furniture is okay. All right, fine. But the Kohen Gadol does bring in the spoon and the coal pan with the incense. And that is made out of gold. So he is bringing it in. Um, you know, that's fine also. Those are just temple vessels. We mean that he shouldn't adorn himself with gold coming in like, oh, see, look how beautiful I am with this, uh, with my gold uniform. And that would be, um, that would be degraded, kind of showing off with using something that you just, uh, not just, but, you know, a long time ago used as uh, something sinful. We should be more sensitive and keep away from that. Okay, last question. Yeah, but even on Yom Kippur, he wears big dezahav. He wears golden clothes when he's not in the not in the kodesh kodeshim, and uh, so well, So only when he goes in, but outside is okay. Yeah, but now compared to Shofar, Shofar, we blow Shofar on Rosh Hashanah. We don't blow it in Kodesh Kodeshim. They would blow it outside. We blow it in Bet Knesset. They blew it on the, in the Bet HaMikdash too, but outside. So just like he can wear golden clothing outside the Kodesh Kodeshim, Shofar should also be okay. And final answer, No, because the purpose of the Shofar is to evoke God's remembrance and it's like, you know, an intimate cry. 
And so therefore, that moment is similar to the moment when the Kodesh, when the Bet- when the Kohen Gadol goes into Kodesh Kodashim, right? This is a very, very powerful uh, cry and prayer. And so, you know, it's the, uh, since it's like, you know, the high point, of, of uh, Rosh Hashanah, it's similar to the high point of Yom Kippur, and that's why it nevertheless is not appropriate. So it's true, there's other gold things that happen in Yom Kippur, and there is blood of a pod, but all that is not as significant as that Shafar moment, and so we do not want to recall Cheta Egel at the time. Um, okay, so that, that answer is fine. The only problem with it is that it goes against the Mishnah. The Mishnah gave an explicit reason. The Mishnah said, because it is a Keren, and it's, it's called a Keren, it's not called a Shofar. So the Mishnah just gave a simple definitional answer. Um, so, Ola, why are you adding something? So he, Ola would say, Yes, Ola says, I'm not disagreeing with the Mishnah. I'm giving another answer. Two answers. Number one, you can't take something that was a prosecutor and make it an advocate. And also, it's not the definition is not a shofar, it's a keren. Good. And now we have the third and final explanation. Right, before we get to the third answer, this is just uh, um, finishing up what the Biosay's opinion. Remember, the Biosay says you can use a cow. So how, how is the Biosay going to uh, defend himself against Ula? Ula is much later than Biosay. The Biosay is a Tana. Ula is an Amora. But still, you know, theoretically, if that's the reason, what would, would the Biosay say to that? He would say that which you said, that a prosecutor cannot become an advocate that's only if it's in Kodesh Kodashim. So he doesn't wear the clothing. But Shofar is outside. And he, he, he disregards that idea that a Shofar outside is like uh, the Kohen Gadol in, inside. Okay, so he, if, uh, he rejects the analogy. And uh, that which you said, that it's not a Keren, he, he already decided, he already uh, showed proof that every Shofar is also called Keren, that these words are synonymous. So that's how the Biyoseh could fit into the statement of Ula. All right, and now for the third answer. Why do Rabbanan say that you cannot use a shofar from a cow? Because Pasuk says, You have to blow a shofar. It's in singular and not two or three shofarot. Uh, a horn of a cow has many layers and it looks like two or three shofarot. All right, fine. That answer sounds good. The problem is, what about the Mishnah? The Mishnah gave an explicit reason. That it's because it's called a ked and it's not called a shofar. So saying, yeah, I'm not disagreeing with the Mishnah. I'm just adding another reason. Number one has to be one and not layered. And number two, also, it's not, it's called a Keren. It's never called a uh, Shofar. And what would Harabi say? What would he say to that reason? So he would say, yes, I agree. They can't be two or three shofarot. You can't blow them all. But rather, but since they're connected, they're connected to each other. It's just layered. So it's like one. So that's sufficient. And the, fa- and the other thing, the, the other second reason that you said 
which was already in the Mishnah, um, Rabbi Yosef says every Shafat is called Keden, their synonyms. And there we go, that we have all three reasons for the sages. You can't use a cow horn because um, it's not never called a Shafat, it's only called a horn. And it will remind us, uh, remind Hashem of the golden calf and is layered like multiple horns and you have to have one horn. Good. Since this whole thing was about word definitions, that's how we started. What is a ked and what is a shafad? So we're going to uh, go to a detour. My mashma de hai yovla lishna de dichrahu. We said bimshoch hayovel when you when you uh, blow you you blow something for a yovel. So yovel can mean the fiftieth year is a yovel, right? But it seems to be called that fiftieth year is called yovel because you blow. A yovel, right? When the sound of the yovel is uh, uh, sounded. So the word yovel, they understand, means a ram, a ram's horn. Um, good. And then only secondarily, it means the 50th year. Now, where do we see that it means a, a male, a male sheep, a ram? This is when I went to Arabia, I heard them call a ram yovla in that language. And that's how I know it's a cognate language related to Hebrew. So you see the Akiva is doing some uh, comparative etymology, which is really cool. Now, where did exactly did he go? Um, because uh, this is an interesting note. The word for ram does not exist in Arabic, at least as far as we know today, but it does exist in Canaanite. And uh, it was still prevalent at the time of Rebbe Akiva in Punic, which was spoken in Carthage. So when he went to Arabia, it doesn't necessarily mean he went to Saudi Arabia. He might have gone to North Africa, where they did speak this, uh, this uh, Punic dialect. And he could have heard the word Yovla there referred to a ram. So this is really cool. You know, nowadays, when we want to know what a word means, often will compare it to other Semitic languages. And so this is very legitimate to do because Rabbi Akiva is already, um, uh, are already doing that. Rabbi Akiva always had his ear open to uh, interesting words. And when he went to this place, Galia, they called someone who's in Ida, they called her Galmuda. So what does that mean? My Galmuda I mean, she's separated from her husband. So it's just a description of actually the word nida also means separated from um, like nida hayata. When he went to he traveled a lot, he went to Africa, and he heard them call a ma'a, which is a certain coin, they called it kesita. Who cares? Torah says that Yaakov bought a field from Shechem, from, uh, from, from the Edomites, and he bought it with a hundred kesita. And we're wondering, what is it? How much is a kesita? So now we know that that is the same as a hundred danke, um, and danke is the same as ma'a. So now we now we can calculate exactly how much that is. Okay, regarding buying land, another uh, etymology. Uh, he went to uh, the towns in the sea and uh, made it some, maybe some uh, uh, some uh, island in the Mediterranean Sea. They called uh, a sale kira. When you buy or sell something, it's called kira. How does that help us? When um, it was all the way at the end of Bereshit, 
after Yaakov dies and after Yosef is about to die, he goes and tells, when after Yaakov dies, Yosef goes to Paro and says, my father uh, made me promise uh, that he would bury me in the place that Kariti in back in Canaan. So therefore, can I have permission to take my father Yaakov and bury him in Canaan? So this, uh, this phrase, Asher Kariti Li, so he, he says it means that he bought, he bought that land. Okay, this is interesting. I think the Peshat here mean of Asher Kariti Li is coming I dug, right? That I dug or that I, that I prepared. Um, so saying that he purchased is really curious because we know that Yaakov says in the few Pesukim later was buried in Me'arat Machpela, and Yaakov did not Yaakov did not buy Me'arat Machpela. Avraham did. So what do you mean that I bought? If you say that I prepared, so that's understandable. He's telling Paro that my father Yaakov had prepared himself to uh, to be buried. He wanted to be buried in Me'arat Machpela. Um, Doug also would be not literally dug, but that he had in mind that that would be a resting place. But purchased, what would that mean? So this seems to be connected with the previous Dadasha and the whole story, because the question is, is where is Esav buried? Esav has claimed to Marat because it's his family, right? And so is Esav buried there too? Some say yes, but others uh, would, will connect these two together and say that this land that Yaakov bought was Esav's right to Marata Machpela, and therefore that I bought, I can be buried there, not Esav. Okay, so there's a whole lot uh, uh, going on here between the lines. Okay, more etymologies. So he went to this place, Deshakish, and he heard that a bride is called Nifni, and a rooster is called Sechvi. And what's the proof that we can bring from Pesukim? Jerusalem of here in this Mizmor is called a beautiful view, joy of the whole earth, Sion. And so here, just like Jerusalem is beautiful, so too a bride is called beautiful, beautiful, and that's the etymology of their word nifni. And how do we see that sechvi means a rooster? A pasuk in the Yov that says who has um, put, who put wisdom in the hidden parts of a person, meaning one's kidneys. One, uh, I believe that uh, wisdom comes from, like when you have a gut feeling, right? I feel it in my kidneys. And who gave the rooster understanding that they know they know when it's going to be uh, when the when when it's going to be dawn, and so they already start uh, uh, um, start hollering. Uh, so the first half of the passage is talking about uh, kidneys. Right, they know what time of the night it is, and so that's why it's called sechvi. Okay, very good. Sechvi um, here in the pasuk and peshat is not clear. It could also mean who gave understanding to the mind, and then it would be actually more parallel to the beginning. Who gave betuchot chokma? Um, in the inside of us, who gave us wisdom inside, and who gave our minds bina. So zechvi can mean both of them. Um, nowadays, uh, I, I once had a friend, he went to a restaurant in Israel, and he ordered zechvi, and the waiter had no idea what he was talking about, because if you want to order uh, chicken, you say off, and then they'll know, right? Zechvi is not, is not the common word in modern Hebrew to mean a rooster or chicken. 
um, uh, but uh, even in the pasuk that we say today, uh, can have either one of these two meanings, who gave a rooster understanding or who gave man understanding, uh, both of us that we, uh, as we wake up in the morning, we can distinguish between night and day. Good. So one time Levi went to a certain place and a, a man came to him and said, this so-and-so, Planya, this person, Kiva'an. He did an action called Kiva'an, but he didn't know what the word meant. And I guess he was embarrassed to ask him. And so Levi came to Ben Midrash and says, I don't know, I just met this guy. He was speaking some, some strange dialect and he said this word, Mr. So-and-so, Kiva'an. What did he do? He was telling you that he was robbed. He was saying that Mr. So-and-so robbed me. And they brought a pasuk where you have this root, right? Can a man rob God? And so that's what it means. That's the end of the story. But now later, in a later generation, commenting on the story, Rabbah says, If I was there, um, I would have asked him some questions if I didn't know what the word means. And I would say, how did he kebat you? Why did he kebat you? Right? Um, uh, with what did he use to kebat you? And then as he would answer, I could figure out what he meant by, the, by that word. Right? This happens sometimes if you don't know, you know someone's name or what the term refers to. In the course of conversation, you ask questions and then you can figure out, oh, I see, yeah, you're related to that person. That, right now I can figure out what, who you are or what you meant. So I says, I would have asked him indirectly. Now, yeah, but Levi didn't know that it had anything, anything to do with another person. Um, maybe he meant in Isur, maybe he thought that this Mr. So-and-so, Kiva'an, means he ate non-kosher. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know, he didn't know then, then those questions wouldn't make sense, right? How did he do that to you? Wouldn't make sense. So he didn't know how to phrase it in a question. He just said, you know, um, you know, nice to hear that. I don't know what he's answered. Okay. Other words that the rabbis were not clear about what they meant is the word serugin, not referring to the TV show, um, but rather in the Mishnah, for example, in Masechet Megillah, it says that if you read the Megillah, Megillat Esther, serugin, it's still okay. It's, it's a kosher reading, but they didn't know what the word meant. So So they learned it just as it happened to be that they were in the home of Rabbi Udanasi. And the sages, they didn't all come in at once. One was coming there, then the other one came five minutes later. They were coming in all different times. And the servant, the maidservant in the house said, how, how, why you keep coming in, serugin, serugin. So now we know what the word means. It means at different intervals. So if someone would read Megillat Estet and read the beginning, read chapter one, and then take a break, then come back some few minutes later and read a few more Pesukim and take a break, then it's still okay. Now they know what it means because for some reason, this maidservant happened to use it in conversation as he was rebu- she was rebuking the, the, the students that they keep coming in at different times and, you know, they should show up to the, to the meeting or the shiur all at the same time. Um, good. So how did the maidservant know what the word meant? Ah, maybe she, she grew up in some town or some place where this was a common word. So um, 
she she knew it because of the dialect that she spoke. Now, the rabbis didn't know what this word meant. So one day they saw, they heard the maid, that same maid servant, they said to a certain man, he was scattering purslane plants. This is purslane here. And she said, How long are you going to go on scattering these? Ha log log got and so he said, "Oh, ha log, that's what it means. It means person." And then they went back to those mishnayot and but I taught where it is, and then now they knew what it meant. Now um, this is actually a pasuk. It's really quite amazing that the Gemara is telling us that the rabbis didn't know what certain pasuki meant. There are some diff- difficult words. You know, we have the benefit of of their wisdom and also the benefit of concordances and dictionaries and comparative languages that um, you know we've been able to mine but uh, they didn't have that and so there were some words that they didn't know um, so one time this maidservant she's like a treasure trove she's like a Miriam Webster maybe that was her name and uh, she saw someone curling his hair and she rebuked him and said, how long are you going to miscellsel your hair, hair? And now we understand that it means um, uh, in the Pasuk, it means to turn something about, turn wisdom about, and it will exalt you, which makes sense to be in Mishle. Okay, this maidservant had a sharp tongue. She keeps <laughs> rebuking the sages for different things. But uh, thankfully, she used nice language when she did so, so we can learn a lot. Another pasuk in Yeshaya. We don't know what this means. Strange word. It looks like a, kind of like an Aramaic word. So one time this maid servant um, told her one of her fellow servants, go take a broom and sweep the house. And now we understand that the Pasuk in Yeshaya means sweep it with the broom of destruction. So that's what it's talking about, uh, destruction, uh, like as if with a, with a broom. Another Aramaic word in the middle is, is Pasuk in Tehillim. And so, lo cast your yehavcha, Upon Hashem, and He will sustain you. What does this mean? What should we cast upon Hashem? So I was traveling with a with an Arab. Taya means a, a traveler. So when it says first to Arab, it's talking about some nomadic tribe that they uh, were, were with. Right? Remember that the, 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 the rabbis of the Talmud lived before Islam was uh, invented. So right, these were, these were just Arab tribes. And so he was traveling with this guy. And the guy said he was carrying a load. And he, uh, I, the rabbi was carrying a load. And this uh, traveler, Arab traveler, said to me, take your yehav and put it on my camel. And so there you go. 
And um, so I, now that I learned, I learned that you have cha means your load. And so it means the same thing in Tehilim, right? Take your, take your burden and cast it upon Hashem. Say, Hashem, help me with my burden and he will sustain you. Very good. So it's always uh, important to get the right derivation and etymologies of the words of Tanakh and of the Mishnah. And this is a good lesson that we should use all, um, all grammatical etymological tools in order to understand the Tanakh uh, as best as possible. And we get to the finally the next Mishnah, which is now going to follow up. And so we learned that you can use a cow horn. And so technically you could use, you can use anything else, but now we're going to talk about the per- preference um, is with an ibex that is straight. Shofar shel Rosh Hashanah shel Ya'el, Pashut and ibex. This ibex in this picture is a bit curved, but some of them are straight also. have, and it's good too. Plate. You should plate the uh, the 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 opening with gold. The Gemara will say that you're not allowed to actually do that. Um, but okay, we'll get there tomorrow. And in the Bet Hamikdash, well, the way they would blow is they have the shofar blower would stand in the middle. And next to him, there will be two trumpet blowers. So it would be like a really nice, you know, three-piece band there. And uh, they would all start blowing at the same time. And that would make it more grand and get everyone's attention. Even though they'll start at the same time, the trumpets would stop uh, blowing after a short time. They would just, you know, just uh, uh, accompany it. But then the shofar would continue blowing for a longer time because the main mitzvah of Rosh Hashanah is the shofar. The trumpets are there only as accompaniment. Um, on fast days, on fast days, they'll say no rain came for a long time and that a fast day. So also they would blow shofar as part of the tefillah. And so on a fast day, you should use a ram's horn. Kifufin, ufihen kesef. Um, so these are bent over and they have are, are covered with silver on their mouth uh, 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 holes. And uh, they, in that case, you have the two trumpet players in the middle and the shofar would be outside because on the fast day, the pasuk says you should blow a sh- you should blow a, a when you're in trouble. So the main mitzvah is the trumpets and the shofar would then start together with them, but stop and the chatzot would continue blowing. Okay, what is the meaning of this? Uh, if it's straight or bent, the Gemara and the end today will, will explain that this has deep symbolic meaning. On, on, on the fast day, we feel humbled and bent over um, because you know we're worried about the rain, so therefore the shofar that we blow should also be bent over, reflecting our own spirit. On Rosh Hashanah, however, you should feel confident and straight and be able to stand up, like you know we are declaring Hashem as the King. We feel confident that we will be judged for good, and so this is very interesting. Now another time that we blow um, shofar is. On Yom Kippur, on the Yovel, uh, the fiftieth year, and we blow it on uh, the Shofar on on Yom Kippur. Um, so Yovel is like Rosh Hashanah regarding how what you blow, and also regarding the Berachot, just like we do the Musaf on Rosh Hashanah, and we have Malchuyot, uh, Zichronot, Shofarot. So too on Yovel on 
when your veil is whenever it's your veil that Yom Kippur, we also have that same musaf with all of those blessings. And so you see, according to this, just like Rosh Hashanah, you should have blow a straight one. So to your veil, your veil is a happy, celebratory, confident. Also blow the straight ibex. That's all Tanakama. Rabbi Yehuda Omer, Rosh Hashanah tokim b'shel zecharim ubayoblot b'shel yealim. Rabbi Yehuda disagrees and says Rosh Hashanah you should use the male ram bent over. I think there is encoded in here a fundamental disagreement regarding uh, the nature of Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah, according to Rabbi Yehuda, is also bent over, humble, lowly. Only Yovel, that, even though it's on Yom Kippur, but it's, it's, it's um, announcing the 50th year, that will be Ye'elim straight, but not Rosh Hashanah. Okay, so in the Mishnah, we have two opinions. The Gemara is going to include one more opinion, which is uh, the opposite, actually, from the first opinion. Amar Rabbi Levi, Rabbi Levi says, Rosh Hashanah and Yovel, which is on Yom Kippur, are those should be bent over. Those are the high holidays and you have to be bent over for them. But for the fast days, which are on all the rest of the year, that straight ones. Okay, exactly the opposite. So that's very curious. Now we wonder, the Tanakama didn't agree with that because the Tanakama said Rosh Hashanah should be straight. And Rabbi Levi said, you saying Rosh Hashanah should be bent. Well, okay, Rabbi Levi doesn't have to agree with Tanakama. He can agree with Rabbi with Yudah. That's just a quote from the ending of our Mishnah. It really could say instead of Tanya. Okay, so he's far, he could follow the Biuda, at least regarding Rosh Hashanah. Now, so why not say, just say the law is like Rabbi Yehuda. Why does he have to say, if he just said, then I would think that he agrees with Rabbi Yehuda regarding everything. But Rabbi Uda said that Yovel, Yom Kippur, used the straight one. And Rabbi Levi disagreed with that also. He said Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is the bent ones. So actually, he doesn't fully, he, he totally disagrees with Tanakama, and he half disagrees with Rabbi Uda. That's why he had to spell out what he means, even though he is uh, partially relying on Rabbi Uda. And finally, we end the daf with the, uh, the deeper philosophical explanation. What is the essence of the machloket between Tanakama and Rabbi Yehuda? We're not going to explain Rabbi Levi. First, we're going to explain Rabbi Yehuda. He says, Rosh Hashanah, you should use a bent ram's horn because the more that you bend, you, you bend your, your posture and bend your mind and be humble and lowly, that's better for someone for uh, a better attitude so that you will make teshuva. Uh, you, feel, you should feel bad about yourself. It's okay to feel, uh, you know, a little guilty um, one, uh, you know, at, uh, as sometimes during the year. However, on Yom Kippur, what they're referring here, here is that is the Yovel. And it's not talking about Yom Kippur in general. Yom Kippur is also a very serious day. But when you're blowing the shofar for your veil, then the more you are straight, the better. 
um, because um, that's is uh, this is important uh, um, uh, straight straightforward prayer that we want to announce. Uh, however, the Tanakama says Rosh Hashanah. It's better to be straight. If you're straight in your mind and you strain your crookedness, that's what they explain here. Or I think it means that you should feel confident. And if you just feel feel guilty and I'm nobody, I'm nothing, I can't do it, then you're not going to be able to make Teshuvah as well as if you say, I'm going to dress nicely and have a beautiful meal and announce Hashem is the king and feel special. And in that way, I'll turn over a new leaf and I'll do everything correctly from now on. So better to, to sing joyously and have confidence. Um, and then finally, but for sure, the both Tanakama and Abiyuda agree that on fast days, one should be uh, humble and therefore um, bent over. So this is really fascinating machloket, and I think you can see today in modern Jewish communities, if you go to different Batei Knesset on Rosh Hashanah, generally you find in Ashkenazi Batei Knesset, their PU team and the, the songs and the tunes are very depressing and low, lowly and, and humble. Whereas if you go to a Sephardi, Adota Mizrach Bet Knesset, you'll find the tunes all uplifting and happy and joyous. And so you see that both of the both of our, these communities have a source um, in the uh, in the opinion of these two Tanaim who encode their understandings of the essence of Rosh Hashanah both in the shape of the shofar. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen ve'amen.